Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 175, the Gornachumaya Uprising. I recorded the last episode yesterday, so big surprise, no new patrons since that episode. But as always, if you feel like supporting the show in 2023, which is in a few hours, then by all means consider pledging even just $1 an episode on Patreon gets you the History of Bonsko miniseries. So even for just a buck a show, you can get something pretty cool, pretty interesting, and pretty special. And most of all, just support the show. But now let's get into it. Last time, Bulgaria lost several major political figures, including Stoilov, Metropolitan Clement, and, well, more in the future. The country also saw the downfall of the Petko Karavelov government over the terms of the desperately needed French loan, leading to a major election victory for a conservative pro-Russian coalition. Now, Bulgaria has moved even closer to Russia, going so far as to sign a secret military pact. However, Russia still firmly backs the status quo in the Balkans and continues to pressure Sofia to contain the actions of the Macedonian revolutionary groups. In Skopje, Serbia has has kind of increased its influence by getting a bishop installed. The MRO, for its part, is still flush with cash from the Miss Stone kidnapping, while the supremacists are really taking a beating. Now, we begin in the summer of 1902. Around this time, the Bulgarian government took further steps to suppress the supremacists in order to strengthen its relationship with Russia, arresting Tsonchev and his aide. So, you know, the leader of the supremacists has been arrested. The government also transferred military men loyal to Tsonchev and the supremacists to parts of the country farther away from Macedonia, also banning arms sales and increasing the number of troops at the Macedonian border to help prevent men and materiel from moving across it. In response, Russia took steps to help ensure Bulgaria got that loan that it needed. So, a little quid pro quo, but overall, the Bulgarian government is really doing what it can to actually crack down on the Macedonian groups. Although, as we'll see, there's there's some limitations to what they can practically do. So, Tsonchev has been arrested and the supremacists have been suppressed. It remains to be seen whether Serafov will be able to take advantage of this and return to his former position at the head of the organization, because he's still a free man. And, well, the MRO, for its part, was undergoing yet another name change, deciding to replace the word Bulgarian with secret to become the Secret Macedonian Adrianople Revolutionary Organization. Now, as I said, I'll just keep calling them MRO just to make things easier to follow, because... Like with the political parties, the Macedonian groups change their name many, many times, and it makes it just so difficult to keep track of who is who and what is what. So I'm just going to continue to use supremacists and MRO to distinguish them, and I hope that helps. Now, but the question remains, so why did the MRO change its name? Well, this was in part designed to move further away from the Bulgarian exarchate and kind of open up membership of the MRO to non-Slavs. So you know, make it a little less ethnically exclusionary. But the move also made it clear that although Ivan Geshov was left ostensibly in control of the MRO after its leaders were arrested, he had clearly failed to exert much influence on it because, well, 
he was very pro-exarchate. That was part of his original kind of opposition to the MRO as a part of the Brotherhood. So yeah, the fact that they changed their name to put a little distance between them and the exarchate really shows the extent to which Gervonov has not really kind of taken control. So who is in control? Well, the new changes were mostly spearheaded by Gotsedelchev, but it's worth noting that we don't know whether an MRO Congress or a central committee run by Gervonov sanctioned these rules. So even the kind of nuts and bolts as to how this change was implemented are not really clear. So yeah, we're, we're unsure about how the MRO is working as an organization at this exact moment, but we do know that Gotsedelchev clearly has a lot of influence and is pushing these changes. Overall, though, there was a lot of speculation around the spring of 1902 that a new uprising in Macedonia was imminent. Around that time, despite the arrest of its senior leaders, Cheta activity by supremacist groups was also reaching new highs, with many small bands operating in and around Piran Macedonia. Now, it's a bit ironic because at this moment, the MRO and supremacist activity seem to be at an all-time high, just as both organizations are being suppressed both in Bulgaria and in the Ottoman Empire. For their part, the Ottomans heavily reinforced both their regular army and irregular Bashibuzuks in Macedonia. Now, those irregulars were in particular the kind of responsible for perpetrating several massacres that created a more general sense of chaos and lawlessness in Macedonia at this time. You can imagine the combination of, you know, heavier than average Cheta activity from the supremacists, you know, for more Ottoman soldiers, more Ottoman irregulars, just all of these, a lot of men with guns running around Macedonia at this moment, and it's really showing. Now, to be fair, though, the Sultan did issue orders to try to calm the situation, instructing his soldiers and political leaders in the region to exercise with restraint and even withdrawing the Bashibuzuks, knowing that basically they're just a recipe for chaos and trouble. He was overall keenly aware that harsh actions taken in Macedonia could elicit more European sympathies for non-Muslims in the region. So for the moment, the Ottomans still had European backing to preserve the status quo, But as we know, European public opinion could change with the right kind of newspaper coverage. So the Sultan was being very cautious about that. And also as a result, journalists were very heavily restricted into how they could move around and cover things in Macedonia in an attempt to kind of prevent negative coverage. Now it was in this moment that the supremacists held the 10th Macedonian Congress. This gathering re-elected Sonchev, who had recently escaped from prison, showing that despite his recent arrest and all that chaos, again, he was still firmly in control of the organization and not Serafov. The Congress also decided to invite Gotze Delchev to make a presentation about the activities of the MRO, but Delchev declined, stating that the supremacists were basically more trouble than the actual Ottomans in the eyes of the MRO. So, Showing that these, you know, despite the previous collaboration right now, the organizations are not getting along. And while the supremacists are clearly making some effort at maintaining some ties, the MRO are just done with it. So again, this signals that for now, cooperation between them seems to be at an end. This Congress also created a lasting rift in the supremacists over the question of whether to use violence. Zonchev and his supporters claimed that now was the time for armed rebellion, while a substantial group of the supremacists were against this and ultimately decided to withdraw from the organization in protest. So, in essence, there were now two rival supreme Macedonian committees, 
one under the influence of the Bulgarian government, calling for no violence to be used, and another calling for an uprising. All of this led to a situation where an active-duty Bulgarian army officer named Colonel Atanas Yankov, well, gets involved, let's say. Now, he had been working for the supremacists without any real interference for quite a, quite a while. But by July, the Bulgarian government had decided to arrest him. And in response, he fled across the border and raised a cheta of somewhere between 80 and 100 men. He soon arrived in his hometown of Zagorizani, today in Greek Macedonia. There, he set up a meeting with local MRO bands, leading to a rather tense gathering of lots of armed men and would-be insurgents in one place who didn't necessarily get along. Now, at this meeting, Yankov asked for the support of these MRO bands in launching an uprising, claiming, as we know incorrectly, that the MRO Central Committee had actually approved this collaboration, and even stating that Bulgaria and Russia were going to intervene once the uprising began, Again, despite what we know is a huge amount of evidence showing that that is very much not true. Now, these MRO bands decided to ask their regional committee, but of course that regional committee had no idea any uprising was planned and that any sort of cooperation had been authorized. Basically, like, they don't know what these people are talking about. And so, as a result, the MRO Chetty declined the offer to collaborate in the uprising. Despite this, though, Yankov stated that the uprising would begin on September 20th, and alongside this, other supremacist bands began to prepare for actions elsewhere in Macedonia. It was in this heightened environment that the MRO under Gervanov held an internal congress on the 1st of September. The MRO was extremely worried about supremacist actions because they felt an uprising now would fatally undermine their own efforts at gradually building up support for independence and Bulgarian collaboration, perhaps, through education. MRO members like Gotze Delchev and Jan Sindansky also felt that they were much more familiar with the realities on the ground in Macedonia, and that it was basically their judgment that an uprising now would be doomed to fail. As a result, MRO bands began to actually legitimately fight supremacist bands, you know, gunfights and things, in order to prevent them from starting the uprising. So it's not just that the MRO was against the uprising, so it was going to set it out. It actively wanted an uprising to not happen and was willing to fight for that goal. Even Colonel Yankov's detachment itself was attacked and actually defeated by several MRO groups, forcing him to flee to Greece before making his way back to Bulgaria. Many of his followers subsequently changed sides and decided to align with the MRO. But despite all these setbacks, well, it's doubtful the members of Sofia were even aware of these setbacks, so despite them, but also they were irrelevant because the people deciding to call on the uprising and things didn't know any of this was happening. All that is to say, the supremacists were committed to this uprising, regardless of what was happening on the ground. So on October the 4th, the president of the supremacists announced that a revolt had begun at a rally in Sofia, asking for support from those in the crowd and generally those in Bulgaria. Shortly afterwards, Tsonchev published a letter which read, quote, The great struggle of Bulgarians has begun. The people do not aspire to the establishment of a great Bulgaria. They are fighting for freedom from tyranny. End quote. Now at another rally, some 10,000 people gathered to support the supremacists and the cause of freedom in Macedonia. But even as all this was happening, the revolt itself had actually begun. 
Now, like so many Bulgarian uprisings before, it begun, it was begun prematurely. Essentially, three Ottoman soldiers were killed when more and then more Ottoman forces arrived and sort of more fighting broke out, and this drew in yet more Chetty reinforcements. And, you know, it's usual, like a tiny fight breaks out and then more and more people keep funneling in to help their side. And next thing you know, you've got a proper battle on your hands. And indeed, on the first day, several battles raged. This was September 23rd, uh, mostly in villages around the Struma River, again in Piran, Macedonia. You can, I, I think I should remember to put a map on the, on the map, on the uh, podcast, but essentially the bottom left corner of Bulgaria, if you imagine that. Now, the plan was to strike at the three main towns in the region, Gornajumaya, which today is Blagovgrad, Petrich, and Melnik. But that early, you know, the premature beginning to the fighting meant that for now, the fighting was rather sporadic and not very kind of focused and uh, planned. Now, the rebels did, despite all this, manage to gain control of about 28 villages as fighting calmed for a time while the Ottomans brought in reinforcements. Then, by around mid-October, more serious fighting broke out again, and General Tsonchev himself actually led soldiers in fighting and was wounded. But while some Ottoman soldiers and local notables were killed, the Cheti honestly hardly stood a chance against the proper Ottoman army. Estimates I found gave a lot of different ranges, but from the low to the high end, it said that maybe 300 to 2,500 Bulgarians were involved in the fighting, as opposed to 14 to 17,000 Ottomans. So, you know, even at the, the highest range of Bulgarians and the lowest range of Ottomans, you're looking at, what's that, like, I think one to six ratio almost of Ottomans to Bulgarians. Like, it's not even close. But again, this uprising essentially ran into all the same problems that previous uprisings had. There was the premature start, but also the reality that few Bulgarians really rose up to support it because, well, this was going, yeah, they, they had seen what other uprisings looked like in practice. And, well, you know, they knew that they usually didn't turn out very well for the local population. And, yeah, this was likely because, as we've seen, the uprising was started by these Cheti. But as local populations, they are the ones to face the consequences, so they were quite hesitant in a lot of examples. You know, those Cheti, they can just flee back into Bulgaria. The locals, well, these are their homes. They can't so easily leave them to flee reprisals. So, although they had largely been withdrawn from Macedonia, Bashipazuks were still hanging around, and they enacted brutal reprisals in villages that were connected to the uprising, burning somewhere between 15 and 28 villages to the ground, depending on the source you believe. By November, the uprising was effectively over, as the remaining supremacist Cheti withdrew back to Bulgaria. Now, an additional layer of tragedy here was that the actual aims of the uprising weren't even clear. Even today, we're not totally sure what the supremacists thought that they would accomplish. Now, there's speculation that it was designed to increase Ottoman brutality to sort of further bring European attention to the plight of the people of Macedonia, or that it was simply a play for Tsonchev and the supremacists to take over the MRO by kind of showing how much more effective they were. Perry describes how, quote, it is likely that Tsonchev intended to attempt a takeover of the grassroots MRO committees, not by force, but by demonstrating through the use of his chetas that the professional military leaders in Macedonia were much more effective than school teachers. Thus, he presumably planned to win the allegiance of MRO partisans by demonstrating that his men were superior fighters and tacticians, end quote. 
Now, if this was indeed his motivation, it's frankly disturbing to see someone inflict so much suffering just to make a point or to you know, further the power of his organization. But you know, I'm sure he felt the ends justify the means. But the, the murder, the torture, and the rape, which, which resulted from the Gornet Jemaya uprisings, I mean, these are real consequences. And you know, it always disturbs me to see people be a little bit flippant about bringing those kinds of reprisals on someone for their own reasons. But in any case, ironically, the Amaro, despite having tried so hard to stop the uprising, also now faced the full weight of its reprisals. Because, well, to be honest, the Ottomans didn't really care whether an uprising was led by the supremacists or the MRO, and they barely made a distinction between them. And so, you know, if the supremacists led something, even if the MRO opposed it, the Ottomans will blame everyone and have a more general crackdown. So this was particularly true because, as I mentioned, when the uprising kind of fizzled out, supremacist Chetty left for Bulgaria, but the MRO members, they stayed. So they were there to face the reprisals. Well, unsurprisingly, the Ottoman government overall was furious about the uprising, blaming the Bulgarian government in particular for failing to prevent it, despite all the policy changes I mentioned. Perry writes how, quote, the Sultan was caught between his wish to stamp out rebels of all hues and the need to ensure that the Muslim population did not cause incidents which would have adverse repercussions in the presses of Europe, end quote. So again, you know, the Sultan wants to suppress these uprisings, but he knows if he does it in a, such a brutal way, it'll look bad, it'll draw more European attention. He's in a difficult position. But, you know, there's, honestly, there's only so much control he has over the situation. You know, as we've seen, if, if like Bashir Bazooks and things are there, there's going to be harsh reprisals pretty much no matter what. Ultimately, despite attempts by the Ottoman government to balance suppressing the uprising, while not arising too much European sympathy for the Slavic Macedonians, the uprising did indeed bring a good deal of European attention. For example, it led France and the UK to call for reforms in Macedonia, and even gave Russia and Austria-Hungary the green light to intervene. Uh, that is, France and the UK told Russia and Austria-Hungary if they wanted to intervene, that the other great powers would allow it. Although, again, Russia and Austria-Hungary have made it very clear that they have no intention of intervening, so it didn't really matter. Now, the irony, though, was that the reforms that France and the UK were calling for were the same reforms that had been promised in the Treaty of Berlin 24 years previously. These are the same uh, reforms that the Bulgarian government has said time and time again, hey, when's this happening? These should be you know, implemented. And it shows how, you know, as we've seen, the Treaty of Berlin you know, a lot of its provisions that had to do with Bulgaria were very, very strictly applied. And the great powers were really clear that there would be no deviating whatsoever, even, you know, by one letter from the treaty, the terms of the treaty. However, when it came to the terms about how the Ottomans were obligated to enact some reforms, basically nobody cared. And as we've seen, that was very, you know, the Bulgarians were very aware of that in Sofia, and it was deeply frustrating for understandable reasons. So, in early December, though, the Sultan did announce that, that reforms would be coming to Macedonia. For example, Christians would now be allowed into the police force, particularly for Christian communities, and there would be some changes to how budgeting would work in the European vilayets and the land tax. A new land tax would replace the traditional tithe system, and there'd be a few other small changes. But, you know, honestly, nothing too huge. Ivan Geshev, for his part, called the reforms, quote, a big nothing. 
end quote. Otherwise, by early 1903, the Bulgarian government formally outlawed all the Macedonian organizations, including the MRO and the, and the supremacists. Solnchev and many of his allies were quickly arrested once again. All that is to say, Russia had finally gotten its way. It was putting immense pressure on everyone involved to keep the Balkans as they are, and successfully forcing the Bulgarian government to effectively go to war with its own people. Because again, the Bulgarian people are very sympathetic towards the Macedonians, and they want at least autonomy for Macedonia, but the Bulgarian government is forced by the Russians to kind of suppress those inclinations. Because, well, let's be clear. The supremacists in the Emperor are no joke. Whether you see their members as heroes or rebels or whatever, there's no getting around that they're both effectively very well-armed terrorist organizations. I mean, they both also have educational and like humanitarian elements to what they try to do, but you know they're still armed like rebels effectively. And the fact that they have so much support amongst the populations of Macedonia and Bulgaria means that you know they're dangerous, whether they're banned or illegal or not. They're dangerous organizations that can, you know, even with their failed uprisings, they can have quite a substantial impact. Now, that's why at this moment, no doubt many in the palace and Sofia and the wider government there must have been very deeply worried about the potential backlash that could come from banning these groups. I mean, there's no telling whether those groups might respond by, say, turning their weapons against the government in Sofia or even uh, Prince Ferdinand. It's ironic because, again, the wider Bulgarian public is still, at the same time, very pro-Russian, kind of but also very strongly in favor of autonomy, independence, or even annexation of Macedonia. And yeah, I find this ironic because those two things are basically contradictory, right? Russia is so firmly against those goals in Macedonia, and yet most people still kind of support both. But there you go. But overall, though, it shows what a difficult position Bulgaria was really in at this moment. Serbia and Romania posed very direct threats and held claims on Bulgarian territory. Both also had the backing of Austria-Hungary, making them very dangerous potential foes. But the only realistic ally Bulgaria had available was Russia, and Russian friendship came with a few benefits but some very substantial costs in terms of what Bulgaria was expected to do. Constant's biography of Ferdinand describes how, quote, much of his bitterness against Austria and Russia and his consequent resolve to use them as cynically as they were using him stemmed from a genuine feeling of outrage at what he considered their short-sighted, unenlightened, and illiberal attitude to the suffering of the Macedonian Christians. Such feelings were bound up with his own resentment at the treatment he had received at their hands at different times, the sarcasm, the threats, the snubs, and the plots, end quote. So, it's understandable. Ferdinand, he, he appreciates their perspective because he knows these places, particularly Austria-Hungary, that's where he's from. He knows them well, but he feels that they're being stupid, that they're, they're being, as I said, short-sighted, unenlightened, and, un and illiberal in how they're viewing the status of the Balkans. So there's a lot of frustration building there. In fact, years after these events, Ferdinand told the British envoy to Sofia that Russia had, quote, Long realized that it had been a great mistake on her part to have ever called the Bulgarian principality into existence, and she had persistently endeavored to stunt its growth. End quote. 
before Ferdinand went on to note the suspicion and hostility with which Russia regarded Bulgarian Macedonians. In the end, though, this reinforces my personal view that Stambolov's approach to Macedonian policy was the best one. Considering the pressure pressure put on Bulgaria by the great powers, the only way it could realistically take any actions to increase its influence in Macedonia was through soft power. Abandoning that approach had by this point done incredible harm to Bulgarian foreign policy, as well as the material living conditions of the people in Macedonia. Right? Going the kind of route of violence for, for Bulgaria, to me, seems to be a lose-lose. It's not very effective on the ground, but it's also not very effective in terms of uh, winning friends and allies that are going to be so necessary if Bulgaria is actually going to enact real change in Macedonia. But overall, this was the state of things as 1902 came to an end. There was yet another failed uprising in Macedonia, which led to immense death and suffering, along with substantial damage to the supremacists as an organization. It had also succeeded in increasing European pressure on the Ottomans for reform, but what the realities of that reform will look like in practice? Well, let's say they remain very unclear. Elsewhere, the final agreement on the French loan meant that France now had partial control over Bulgarian government state finances. Romania, besides threatening Bulgaria with claims on a large portion of its territory, also spent the year continuing its colonization and homogenization policies in northern Dobruja. Essentially, Romania had been encouraging more and more ethnic Romanians to move in and displace the region's Bulgarian population, and, well, this year they also basically closed all but one Bulgarian school in the region by imposing very unreasonable education requirements that schools generally were unable to meet. So, yeah, Romania is continuing to kind of persecute the Bulgarian population of northern Dobruja and try to kind of further cement its control over that territory. Otherwise, 1902 was also the first year cars began operating in Sofia as the Ministry of War imported a few. Now, as we enter 1903, one major question is hanging over events. What is the MRO going to do next? True, it's illegal in Bulgaria now, but the organization still has all that cash from the Miss Stone kidnapping and hasn't been harmed nearly as much as, as the supremacists by the events of the previous year, despite, again, the fact that they were kind of caught up in the Ottoman reprisals. Well, in the first days of the new year, Gervanov, the Brotherhood member who accidentally ended up head of the MRO, called for a new Congress to decide on the organization's next steps. It was to be held in Salonika, but only an assortment of MRO members were invited or even agreed to attend, because again, Gervanov wasn't the official head, it was kind of unclear. So far from being kind of a genuine Congress representing the entire MRO, it was more a meeting of a lot of random members who happened to support Gervanov and who would agree to come. At the Congress, Gervanov argued that the organization had to take dramatic action or face destruction. Perry summarized the dangers it faced, writing, quote, MRO faced a multi-front struggle. Tsonchev was determined to control the organization. The port wanted to destroy the group. The great powers opposed MRO's activities. The Bulgarian church and state were antagonistic. Serbia and Greece sought to counter its growing influence, end quote. So Gervanov was not exaggerating. The MRO was facing a tremendous number of difficulties and opponents. 
In fact, some Greek insurgent bands had actually entered Macedonia in late 1902 and were now occasionally fighting with MRO groups. In essence, by this point, the Greeks were kind of working alongside the Ottomans to help combat Bulgarian influence, showing just what strange bedfellows the struggle for Macedonia could make. The Greek church actually had officials travel around telling people that if they did not return to the Greek patriarchate, then the Ottomans would attack them. In other words, you know, the only way to save your lives is to join us. But the sad reality was that even when people did do this, it really made no difference as Ottoman Bashibuzuks hardly distinguished between different Christian groups. They didn't care. Essentially, the increase in Ottoman pressure was now so intense that Gervano felt that the MRO was in a kind of use-it-or-lose-it position with its members and the weapons that they had slowly accumulated at such great cost. He now proposed leading an uprising in the spring. Yes, the same organization, which had just a few months back, actively fought battles against the supremacists to prevent them from starting an uprising, were now wanting to lead their own uprising just a few months later. Granted, again, this was in part because of the increased pressure resulting from that uprising, but still, it's a bit ironic. Shockingly, this debate created deep division within the MRO. Gervanov and others favored a revolt, while others like Serafov and Gotsadelchev were hard against it. Meetings were also held by MRO supporters in Sofia, where it was ultimately decided that a revolt should not take place, and it basically just wasn't a good idea at this time. But the reality was that the main congress in Thessaloniki was almost exclusively made up of MRO members handpicked by Gervanov, so it's hardly surprising that they ultimately voted to support his proposal for a revolt in the spring. This was despite the fact that many attendees represented regions where MRO members clearly told them that they were unprepared. But, you know, basically, it seems that the the members of this this Congress didn't care very much about the facts on the ground. They had decided they were going to revolt. The time was now. They didn't, felt they didn't have a choice, I guess. The, The MRO was facing too many challenges and it could be destroyed if it wasn't ready to do this. So, A revolt was now in the works, despite the fact that so many local MRO organizations were unprepared, and it was unclear whether the local population would even support them. But it was crystal clear that no foreign power, including Bulgaria, would support them or intervene. Frederick Moore, an American journalist based in Macedonia, wrote how, quote, The high chiefs of the MRO never expected to defeat the Turks with their inadequate force of untrained peasants. Their purpose was to provoke the sultan to set his soldiers upon the Christians. They were willing to pay with the lives of many thousands of their brother Macedonians for the accomplishment of their desire, the country's autonomy. They were fanatics. End quote. I found there was, there was an interesting kind of outsider's perspective in how this American journalist saw things, but I can hardly disagree with them. These, these people... You know, they, they, they want what's best for, for Macedonia, but they're fanatics. And they're very clearly willing to, as, uh, as Moore said, pay with the lives of their brothers to get what they want. So the MRO seems to now be committed. Now, although the vote, the vote in favor of the revolt of the Congress was unanimous in support, the wider organization was definitely split over whether to do this. Some opponents suggested that instead of mounting a revolt, the Cheti could instead mount attacks on symbols and institutions connected with the sultan around the region. 
But as Perry notes, quote, revolutionary fever was becoming an epidemic among MRO leaders. Logic no longer had a role in determining the organization's direction, end quote. And, well, that sentence scares me. Uh, that's that's a, a, a frightening sentence for the future of this movement. Logic no longer had a role in determining the organization's direction. Now, Girvanov did ultimately travel to Sofia to try to convince MRO members there to support the revolt, even if it was maybe a little postponed. But most of the support was from people who accepted that nothing could stop the revolt, and so they may as well try to help ensure the revolt is less of a disaster. So, you know, after a little bit of back and forth, they decided that the revolt would at least be postponed from the spring to the summer. And with that, we'll finish this episode. One uprising has already been a costly failure, but another is already in the works. Unfortunately, the outlook for 1903 is not looking much better than that for 1902. Of course, it's always possible we'll be surprised, but, well, we'll see. So next time, we'll see the death of several more major Bulgarian figures as as a result of the MRO's attempts to revolt. It's going to be, well, it's going to be something, so don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, check out bghistorypodcast.com for more info on this and every episode. And I'll see you in the next one.